Welcome to the Royal College of Psychiatry podcast with me, Ella Marchant. February is Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual and Trans History Month in the UK and in unity with the LGBT movement and to commemorate the 16th consecutive year of LGBT History Month, we are interviewing two members of the LGBTQ community who both have different experiences of the community and of course their own unique relationship with mental health and mental health services. Our first interview is with Dr Louise Theodosio, who we spoke to at a college leadership event. Our second interview is with Jamie. Jamie identifies as a trans man and has used mental health services for just under 10 years. Dr Louise Theodosio is a child and adolescent psychiatrist working in central Manchester. We wanted to talk with Louise about the misconceptions surrounding gender, what schools can do to educate their pupils on mental health and the types of negativity members of the LGBT community experience in 2020. We start by asking how Dr Louise chose to specialise in child and adolescent psychiatry. This first interview contains topics of child abuse. The leadership conference that's happening upstairs, the um, first speaker was Dean Professor Sue Bailey, who is obviously a role model to practically every psychiatrist, and we're particularly proud, obviously, that she's a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And um, I, I was lucky enough to, um, as a very junior trainee, work with Pratiba Chitsabeson, who's once again another one of our sort of very exciting, very hardworking um, child psychiatrists. And I worked with her when I was um, doing my core training in psychiatry. And what I would like to say is how much I enjoyed every single part of psychiatry that I did. Mm. I worked with such generous and such energetic um, adult psychiatrists. But I think what stood out for me was child psychiatry because you have the opportunity to work with people at the very start of their lives and to, if possible, help them have the support that they need to go on not only to be healthy adults but to be adults who enjoy their lives yeah i think you know there are so many expressions that are used nowadays with a degree of um sort of light-heartedness you know living your best life but i think they're absolutely true and mm. i think some of the children and young people that i work with who are for example experiencing depression and we know rates of depression are rising particularly in girls they're experiencing that depression at that point when they should be having fun um, forming relationships and mm. figuring out who they want to be and I think in child psychiatry we have the opportunity to support people to help people realize that conditions such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder autism spectrum conditions impact on how you see the world and how you integrate into the world but they shouldn't stop you from being who you are and from, mm. from having a happy life and so I think I, had, I was lucky enough to work with Sue to work with Pratiba and I thought I want I want to be part of this really amazing energetic field that is child psychiatry mm. and all the way along the line I've been so lucky um, I worked in um, child and adolescent psychiatry with a wonderful psychiatrist Kenny Ross and, and he's remained a, a very close friend of mine and um, I'm lucky enough to work in Manchester I've got a fantastic clinical director Ruth Marshall and I've just had a lot of opportunities and sort of had this this amazing opportunity to remain absolutely you know at the core of child psychiatry yesterday i was discussing young people who were experiencing very high levels of risk and supporting other workers in our, our sort of wonderful very multi-agency multidisciplinary field and to me being able to balance that with days like today when i can reflect on leadership and generosity mm -hmm. Is, is just an amazing gift and I, I sort of don't understand why anybody wouldn't want to be a child psychiatrist. Um, Sue was just talking upstairs about sort of not only recruiting people but retaining people and I think for me you know there is no doubt that some of the stories you hear are very sad and some of the the times when when you just feel that you you cannot do enough you can go home feeling feeling very very sort of 
I suppose, sad at the end of a day like that. And some of the child psychiatrists, um, you know, Pratiba, Ruth, mm. um, my boss, and Rachel, another lovely child psychiatrist I work with, they just help you feel that actually you're part of something really important. Yeah. But in addition to that, I think that there is that, that amazing sense of working with children and young people who, who want to have a service from you and who find new and really innovative ways of interacting with you and working with you to sort of get the support that they need. And I think that is the, that is the balance in child psychiatry, that wonderful balance of the right colleagues, but also an, an amazing group of people to, to be working alongside to address mm. their, their wellbeing needs, really. So it was a the actual content of what you were covering and doing was great but the people you were meeting were kept inspiring you yeah. to keep going absolutely in the job and continue to because i think that becoming a consultant is a it's a wonderful gift but mm. it's also a huge responsibility and you realize at that point how important it is to have peers that you can phone when when maybe you you're not the most adult version of yourself and will still like you and respect you when when maybe you're feeling very low and feeling a bit vulnerable yeah you can see so these are um other men and women you can show yeah. your vulnerable side to and that's Absolutely. very important hugely important very interesting um yeah. i've been reading like different interviews that you've been doing um online and stuff and a lot of it is to do with how we can um get in early at school age and start to educate there and um, what kind of steps do you think schools can take to educate their pupils i was lucky enough to um, read a lot around the sort of amazing concept of intersectionality and um, to, to really start to realise that for myself as somebody who, who is lucky enough to be in a profession and, and in a workplace where I can be openly gay and where I can be a consultant who goes home to a, a wonderful woman who's very tolerant towards me, to have that opportunity is, is partially um, an amazing gift that that I should, should sort of be open about and should share. Mm. And I think what you realise as a child and adolescent psychiatrist is that yes, I, I belong to that minority group, and I'm very very proud to be part of the LGBT community. But actually, I also know that I'm I'm very privileged. You know, I yeah. I, I have a very exciting job that enables me to have my voice heard. And actually, I I am in that way in, in terms of internet intersectionality. I'm not one of the silent minority, but I you know I work with um, a lot of young people from minority ethnic groups who who may also be LGBTQ mm. or or maybe experiencing physical disabilities alongside mental health needs and may also be LGBTQ. And the more minority needs you have, the harder it can be for people to think about you and for your voice to be heard. And I think for me that that's one of the biggest challenges that we face. And I think in terms of schools, schools have that opportunity because when people are young, then you know everybody has that ability to access education. But mm. what schools have to do is to make sure that they genuinely can. You mm. know that children in classes who maybe have undiagnosed developmental needs are not seen as being naughty. They're seen as being children with additional needs. They are maybe referred for assessments. Children who aren't concentrating because they're experiencing depression or maybe because they're experiencing um, some sort of safeguarding abuse situation. Mm. Schools have the opportunity to recognise that and I know how busy schools are. I spend time observing children in schools and I, I cannot imagine the responsibility of um, you know trying to educate 30 mm. young minds who all have their own needs. But schools have that chance and I think what is important is for us as um, wellbeing workers, mental health workers, psychiatrists, is to make sure that we're available to schools and that as much as possible we're listening to them and we're allowing them to carry on being that frontline advocate, 
well-being um, inspiration for the children and young people that they're working with. Yeah, definitely. Um, what kind of negativity in 2020 do you think members of the LGBT community are facing? I think there's a couple of very important challenges. I think the first challenge we face is that what, what you realise if you are working with um, families and with society is that we're not yet at the point where LGBTQ lifestyles are fully understood and mm. supported. We do still, and I know it's once again a jargon term, we still live in a heteronormative society where if you are, you know, getting in the taxi in the morning and people are making conversation with you, they might assume that it was your husband that said goodbye to you when you left the house. Yeah. We, we still assume that, um, you know, when we're talking to children and young people, that their, their identities may be heterosexual and that their gender identities maybe cisgender rather than transgender or, or agender or, or some other important gender identity mm. that, that they need to understand and express as their lives go on. So I think a lot of it is about just continuing to move forward. We've made amazing strides, we've got amazing role models, but we need to remember that not everybody is cisgender and not everybody's heterosexual. So I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing we need to do in the child um, Sort of in the sort of the community of people working with children who are LGBTQ, is to make sure that we're being kind to one another. Mm. I think sometimes people end up being angry, they end up being frustrated, they don't quite understand one another's points of view. And what I would say to everyone in the LGBTQ community is there's space for us all. We might not always have the same ideas, we might not all have the same priorities, but actually we, we should be working to support one another because actually ultimately we're all on the same side we all want equality and fairness really yeah of course um you're in child and adolescent psychiatry yes. with the lgbt movement how do you feel that child and adolescent psychiatry has changed in for example the last 10 years i think there's been some amazing innovations i um absolutely love the nhs rainbow badge and mm. i'm proud enough to work for a trust that um has signed up to the rainbow badge pledge I think that um, for the first time, there is a genuine sense that you can be wearing a rainbow lanyard, be wearing a rainbow badge, and that people can see that. And that, you know, one of the things that children and young people who are LGBTQ repeatedly say to me is that they look for signs that mm. somebody will be friendly and that mm. it will be safe to disclose their identity. And I think that I, I now find myself working in an NHS where I can on a daily basis with no fuss, wear badges, wear lanyards that make it clear that I'm a supporter of the LGBTQ community because obviously first and foremost when I'm working with children and young people I'm a healthcare professional and, and my own identity is is obviously you know absolutely at the back of my mind at that moment what is important is that I can say whatever your lifestyle is whatever your identity is gender identity your ethnic identity other identity issues I, I'm first and foremost somebody who's open-minded and a safe space and mm. I think that is an amazing innovation that's happened across the whole NHS and I think child psychiatry has been, been very active and energetic in um, promoting that agenda of, of not, not only tolerance but something much more important and more active about acceptance and about working with people to say I am your advocate, yeah. I am here to help you feel safe and if there are safeguarding implications for you in some aspect of your life that will absolutely be my priority because mm. I think you know we, we know that safeguarding is everybody's priority and I would go a step further and say that supporting people to be able to express their identity is a key part of safeguarding and I think child and adolescent psychiatry is absolutely at the forefront of that. Amazing.
um, thank you for that. Um, you're an LGBTQ activist. Um, what do you feel like has been the most, um, I, I've got written here, what has been the most prominent shift within the community slash what do you think is your biggest achievement? I don't know if those two things might meet. I, th I think they do absolutely meet. I think one of the things about being part of the LGBTQ community, particularly in the NHS and in Manchester, is that it's very easy to open doors and to shift mindsets when you're part of a community. Mm. So I would say that my biggest achievement is having the opportunity to be part of communities that have allowed, have allowed me to be much bigger than I am. I work alongside some amazing voluntary sector organisations, the Proud Trust, I'm working on them to deliver a workshop at um, a conference that the Proud Trust is, is delivering in March. I've also done some work um, with the LGBT Foundation. And what I would say is that, you know, what we know through all of the innovations that are coming out in terms of child and adolescent mental health and well-being is that we absolutely have to work together as agencies, health, education, voluntary sector, we all have to be there together to support children. Mm. And I think that um, my, my biggest achievement is, is being part of organisations that are bigger than myself and, you know, being, being responsive to those opportunities, really. So do you feel like being part of the community has allowed you to sort of... Um, get more kind of attention to what you're saying? Absolutely, and, and more traction. Yeah. Um, you know, for the first time now, we very, very regularly have children and young people working with us to check that organisations are LGBTQ friendly. One of the innovations we've got in Manchester is that one of our very forward-thinking commissioners, Al Ford, created an LGBTQ um, clinical advisor post in our local um, strategic clinical network. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be in that post. And we've got LGBTQ identifying young people going into different health departments across our trusts, looking at whether or not they feel safe and whether or not the organisations are LGBTQ friendly. So I think it's that it's that opportunity to, um, you know, first and foremost, be a clinician, but also to be looking at things through a rainbow lens and to be supported in doing that. And for people to be saying, we do want people who might be viewing the world through a rainbow lens to feel safe accessing mm. our services because I don't think you can ask for anything more than that as an activist really. I think the the phrase through a rainbow lens is very interesting. Yeah. Do you use do you use that term a lot? Is it something that you think you've coined? I, I think I think I was one of the coiners of that term and yes I think I think it's an extremely important term because I think that you know I I am I'm older now you know I I it was a, it's a very long time since I was a child and young person. Mm. I I don't understand how people necessarily will be expressing their gender identity even 10 years from now because I'm, I mm. won't be a young person at that time. But what I can say is that LGBTQ lifestyles are a key part of what makes us such a wonderful and diverse society. And a rainbow lens is something that through its very concept allows more space yeah. for future generations of LGBTQ people to express themselves in ways that I look forward to seeing but that I won't necessarily be part of the zeitgeist that, yeah. that is being developed at that time. Yeah, I feel like in ten years' time, it's going to be a whole—it's going to be a whole different animal. Absolutely. Um, and what do you feel is the most common misconception with gender and sexual identities? I know there is yeah. probably a lot. What do you think you come up against the most? I think some of the common misconceptions, which luckily are fading now, is that people are easily identifiable. I think that. Um, for a long time, activists, and I possibly include myself in this, 
were maybe more stereotyped in how they dressed and how they expressed themselves and in the language they used. But I think that possibly the most exciting gift we can give to future generations is for people to be able to wear their hair and their clothes and to express themselves however they want to and still be part of the LGBTQ community and mm. feel valued mm. and to be able to express themselves. So I think, you know, what I would say is that there, there should be no subtle subtext rules about how you dress, how you present yourself, whether or not you're a vegan, whether or not you, you wear tie-dye and recycle. You, sh you should be able to be whoever you are. Mm. And I think that those misconceptions are fading. But I think the other misconception is the idea that people have to necessarily express being part of the LGBT community, express gender and sexual diversity all the time and sort of in the same way. I think, mm. you know, what I would hope for future generations is that people who, um, you know, wish to define themselves as sometimes being in relationships with people who they perceive to be of the opposite sex, sometimes with people who they perceive to be the same sex as themselves, for people to be able to step in and out of those identities while still maintaining an LGBTQ identity and not to feel that they have to be defined or need to justify the choices they make. I think mm. that is our biggest gift because I think that, you know, in the future hopefully people can step in and out of lots of identities without necessarily feeling that any one of those identities have to define them. Um, how do you think we can empower younger people to talk about gender and sexual identity and kind of give them the, the shell? I think what we need to do is I think we need to make sure that they know it's always okay to have the conversation. I think that um, there's a reason why people carry on wearing t-shirts using banners, using hashtags, it's because labels and clues that spaces are safe are incredibly important. And I think, you know, on, on a very serious, very sad note, we know that there are children who, whose food at the moment is coming entirely from food banks, who are living in homeless, unstable accommodation, and who find that their parents don't have enough money to create a Christmas meal for them. Children like that are so vulnerable, and it's our responsibility as adults, regardless of any aspect of our identity, to make the world a safer place for them where they know where they're going to sleep and they know what they're going to eat next. Mm. But children who are experiencing that level of vulnerability need to know that if they're also exploring LGBTQ lifestyle choices, that they're safe to do that. So what I would say is we need to create spaces, we need to keep the conversations going, we need to make sure that we're, we're fighting for there to be youth groups, for there to be mm. voluntary sector organisations that young people can go to. And we need to make sure that people who are lucky enough to have money are investing it in, in safe spaces and in you know opportunities for young people to express their identity. When you're talking about creating spaces, do you mean like youth centres and stuff like that? Absolutely, youth centres, and even you know, just in in your local areas, you know, um, lots of the the wonderful, uh, you know, the, the cooperative supermarket has charities mm. suggesting to them that they're donating to local LGBTQ charities mm. when youth centres are being set up making sure that people are working with them so that um, it, it's it's obvious that people of all different identities are welcome. I was so pleased to walk past um, one of the local churches where I live and to see that they had a rainbow flag and that they were saying mm. that, you know, LGBTQ people are welcome here. So it's just about making sure that whatever public spaces we have mm. in the UK are open and are friendly to, to everyone, regardless of um, whatever aspect of their identity feels like the thing that's on their mind most, really. So it's really important that we keep progressing with the rainbow lens on and we're when we're talking about creating a venue, we're yeah. looking at it through that lens so yeah. that it is inclusive. Absolutely.
After speaking with Dr. Louise, we sat down with Jamie to discuss his relationship with the mental health services, his thoughts on the LGBT community, and what it was like to connect with a psychiatrist who understood his specific mental health needs. He is originally from Newcastle and now lives in Leeds and is an LGBTQ activist. To give a little context to the interview, I grew up with Jamie. This second interview contains topics of self-harm and suicide. So, um, I'm 26, a trans man, a female to male, transgender, came out as male at 22 um, after identifying as non-binary for a couple of years. Started medically transitioning just over a year ago. And what are you kind of hoping for the future? It's a hard one to answer, but just looking forward to living as my authentic self and being more happy and yeah, yeah, starting my life as it should have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. We're here today to talk about LGBT History Month mm. and your journey in the LGBT community and, of course, uh, mental health as well. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about your mental health journey? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long one. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know where to start. Do you think maybe start when you first kind of were aware of having mental health needs? So, yeah, that would have been when I was like young young 13 14 just um I was always a bit of an oddball I guess but um yeah it was about then I started I think that's really when I started feeling depressed so I started self-harming around 15 which went on well it's been on and off all of my life Mm. so that went on until I was 18 or so which is when I first started getting prescribed uh, antidepressants which were also not for me yeah <laughs> I've been on and off medication since then that would be about when I became homeless um when I was 18 mm-hmm. thankfully never spent much time well no time really on the street which is nice mm-hmm. <laughs> um but spent a lot of time in hostels which is where I got into drugs right okay Yeah, so there was that. I got out of homelessness when I was 21. I moved to where I live now in Leeds. Mm. But at that time, through the homelessness and being in the hostels, I was um, given access to more mental health professionals where they diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Which has now been an ongoing... Well, now I know what was wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> For want of a better word, that's been ongoing. And do you f- what kind of things do you feel like you've have been linked in with the BPD? Uh, you were mentioning a uh, an- bit of anxiety. And- yeah, well, it's it's comorbid with anxiety and depression. A lot of the well, some some of the bigger symptoms for me are the sort of sense of abandonment. Mm. Um, I don't deal well with people leaving. Yeah, a lot of anger, um, self harm sort of came back about that time. Um, and it was in my sort of late teens, early twenties when I started to really question my gender had anything happened when you were younger to kind of make you think you were perhaps not in the right body yeah the first trans person I knew was a a guy who I'd known for a while and he told me he was trans and then I very very 
<coughs> excuse me, very clearly remember um, having a thought about fourteen. Um, I was am I a boy? And I was like, yeah, probably. Let's crush that one down <laughs> for for a while. But yeah, I never really thought about it. I was always very uncomfortable in mm. being a woman. My mm. gender was very. Well, I just figured I had to be because I liked makeup and yeah. I didn't really. That was bloody uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on to talking about from mental health to talking about your relationship with mental health services that you'd accessed. Mm. Kind of from the time that you were aware of having mental health needs up until a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, when I first sort of went to to my mum. And well, and they sort of realised there was things going on with the self harm, and whatever. It, children's services were quite quick to get involved, mm. but useless with actually being involved. Mm. And then from then, it's not been good. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel very let down by them. Um, with you get passed from pillar to post, especially with uh, an illness like borderline, because it's so misunderstood. And there is so much stigma around it and it's very hard to treat Mm -hmm. that I've found a lot of mental health services just try and push antidepressants on you, which, like, borderline, it's a personality disorder. It's quite deep-seated issues. So, think talking therapy is more useful? Um, I think it's got to be... Everybody's different, I think. Um, And it depends where your issues stem from, in my opinion. But I've been referred for dialectical behavior therapy which is the therapy that's been i don't designed is probably the wrong word but it's specifically for borderline but i've been on on and off waiting lists for that for years since i was diagnosed so early 20s Mm. earlier well this time last year i had a suicide attempt that put me in hospital where again i was failed by the mental health system and discharged and had a home visit team for about a week afterwards and then <coughs> excuse me was left to my own devices so I've kind of given up with them in right. all honesty um yeah. I haven't had the support I've needed when I've been literally quite literally begging for it at yeah. times so I've uh just learned learned to deal with it in my own way and yeah do you feel like in a lot of ways you've been like left to your own devices oh yeah absolutely absolutely it's I don't know how to say it politely, but you do get pied off completely by them. <laughs> I don't know. And the only way to express it is in a Geordie <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's not just me either. I know a lot of people, well, my friends and things, that have um, had some quite serious mental health needs and have only just accessed the help they need mm. by begging and begging mm. and, and multiple hospitalisations and... I don't really get why. Mm. I know I understand that there's not a lot of funding for some things, but I definitely want to come back to mental health at the end again, and I want to talk about the LGBT community with you. So, mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit about what the LGBT community means to you? It's a lot of things. I think first and foremost, finding the LGBT community for me, and when I was coming to terms with who I was, I was openly bisexual from a very young age, but coming to terms with who I was and finding all these people that were like me was mm. like, oh, cool, there's other people like me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a really nice sense of community and a sense of safety initially. Right. But after, 
yeah initially but then getting further into it and finding out more about myself and finding out just how unpleasant the world can be mm. for not only a trans person but but anyone in the acronym uh, as it were there were so many spaces which do tend to be bars which say they ca- cater for mm. like it's just cake <laughs> <laughs> just a little finger sandwich cake and biscuits yeah yeah um that say it's for the lgbt community but it's not it's for sort of gay cis gay men and mm. I've actually experienced most of my transphobia, most of the transphobia, um, in toilets in in bars for gay people. Really? Yeah, a lot of why is there a girl in the toilet? And mm. no one just trying to have a wee. <laughs> yeah. Does it does it matter? Yeah, yeah, being obnoxious kind of. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And a lot of are you a girl or a boy questions. So it's a shame that we um all of us don't sort of band together as much as we say we do mm. I think there's this idea of the, the LGBTQ plus community being one big happy family mm. where there's actually quite a lot of infighting and you get different groups of trans people for example trans men and trans women getting at each other right. and and then there's non-binary people that I think can often feel quite left out right. um, I can't speak for anyone but myself of course but which is horrible and then it can be quite elitist and cliquey, I've found. Yeah, and there's a lot of, of transmasculine, excuse me, sorry, put my hands up there. There's a lot of trans, transmasculine erasure. Um, we're one of the most underrepresented groups within the queer and LGBT community, which, especially for newer, uh, newer, newerly, newly? Fresh out the closet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, trans people can, again, be quite isolating when you know, we, you've got no representation for yourself, so you feel even more lost than you did in a cis world, right. in, a, in a community where, you know, you feel like you should be welcomed and then, oh, there's none of me, or, there's, or we're not listened to. Um, and what do you kind of hope for the future of the community? Ideally, I'd like us to all just shut up and listen to each other. Mm. Um, instead of being, I feel everyone... When you're marginalised, you marginalise yourself further by staying in your own bubble right. and sort of focusing on your own issues. And, and um, it'd be really important for us to look at more what we have in common rather than what separates us. Yeah, definitely. So, so we, you know, fight less <laughs> um, with trans people being such a huge hot topic, which is. A problem in itself. Yeah, um, it's, it's so prevalent in the news. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's uh, like like breakfast shows and everything. It's always yeah. sh- can, tra- can kids transition? No, <laughs> <laughs> is the short answer. But um, going back to the LGBT community, if we stopped fighting each other and started looking at what actually the problem is, which is old cis white men who's trying to speak for us maybe do better than we do yeah because it's um it's good but it could be so much better right i think especially for younger people yeah younger and older i think are the two groups that have issues with accessing lgbt spaces why is that do you think a lot of them very alcohol fo- focused uh, like you were saying a lot of lgbt friendly places are bars uh, yeah 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 which um lgbt people have high rates of substance misuse mm. anyway mm. um so there needs to be more i suppose dry spaces and excuse me um 
more creative stuff and more just like days out and like I know it sounds a bit trivial but especially for younger people where you can make friends and meet other people that are like you without having to get drunk yeah 100% not that I dislike getting drunk of course <laughs> <laughs> but you, you've got to safeguard yeah. people especially vulnerable people yeah so bringing it back to um, when we were discussing identity mm. what do you enjoy most about expressing your gender now I think it's less of a question about what I enjoy about it and more what I don't miss. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because I came out realistically quite late. Mm. Not Obviously not as late as some people and everybody's valid and when they come out, but I was like 22 or, and I was very, very feminine. Mm. You know, high heels and skirts and lots and lots of makeup. And I remember very well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, almost drag-esque. And that was all very performative and very much a this is what I should look like or this is what I find attractive on other people so let's give this a go. Mm. And oh I don't miss heels at all. And like I always when I didn't have my hair extensions and I always t- tied my hair up. And I remember thinking back now I remember hating having my hair extensions in and it's just itchy and horrible and mm. all the false eyelashes and everything so it's nice to just be comfortable in my own clothes rather than wearing them for other people, which is really nice. And not having to cross my legs, that's great. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really, really nice. Um, not that you know, I wouldn't say I'd never wear makeup or anything again, but not every day. And, oh, having eyebrows. Mm. Wow, that's nice. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously I used to be... You used to shave your eyebrows shave off. Shave them off, yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't look like an egg anymore every morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, what aspects of transitioning were most difficult? Um, obviously, waiting times. Mm. Um, the waiting times for gender services can be up to four years. Just even, wow. yeah, even for your first assessment appointment yeah. to see if you are right for the services. So that's what does right mean? Sorry, what does right mean? What do you mean right? What is what's right for the services? Oh, um, sorry. Um, whether you're I don't know a politer way to say this, so I do hope no one trans is listening to this and feels awful about it. They'll understand that, I'm sure, is whether or not you're trans enough. What does that mean? Um, So, obviously, gender dysphoria comes in varying levels of severity. Yeah. um, And a lot of gender services um, will only accept you if you're... You know, you can't leave the house. You can't look at yourself in the mirror. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is obviously not the case for all trans people, and of course, all trans people are valid and should be allowed to transition how they see fit. Mm. And there's a justifying yourself, which is very nerve wracking and horrible. And then, should you choose to see another gender provider, there's the the money aspect because it can be quite expensive. Mm. And a lot of like queer or LGBT people are out of work or disabled, chronically ill mentally ill and don't have the resources available mm. to be able to pay so that's hard mm. um and for me it's again going back to the trans the trans debate um which is a horrible term <laughs> um that for me has been very difficult right um since coming out and being like oh yeah i'm finally who i am and then realizing that my life is 
a debate to mm. be put into newspapers for people that don't know anything about trans people who haven't mm. spoken to a trans people to haven't just met have met yeah. the community yeah well they may have done but yeah. no one out that they know and and yeah it makes me feel very exposed very it doesn't make me feel safe at all right and i think reading about reading all these articles about trans people as if i'm not human as if i'm you know they're debating about a human being's right to be alive as if it's yeah. i don't know should we have purple carpets in the office you know <laughs> it's it's madness to me that people think they're allowed to discuss people like people they don't know genitals and yeah. it's it's very odd and very uneducated as well yeah so that's unpleasant it's like <laughs> probably the most difficult part i would say so yeah yeah, yeah, because you can surround yourself with people that love you and understand you. Of course. But when you step out of that, suddenly you're, you're really exposed, you're, you're in danger quite a lot yeah. of the time as well these days. Um, we talked a lot about your BPD before, mm. and I understand that you did see a psychiatrist. Yeah. Was this at the beginning of your transition, and how, in what way was it helpful? Well, I'd been out and socially transitioned in that I was living as male yeah um, I think a lot of people d- sort of think transitioning starts when you start your hormones yes yeah. no not at all um there are some people that don't want to take hormones or have any surgery which is perfectly fine mm-hmm. um or there's a lot of people that can't for allergies or or whatever religious right. reasons can't so your transition starts when you start living as as your true gender which is called social transition and then you've got your medical transition as uh, if and when you choose to start hormones. Sure. So I'd been socially transitioned for a couple of years, um, had started to medically transition through one thing and another, and had my assessment with a psychiatrist who was lovely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he's the first mental health professional I've ever seen that didn't make me want to cry. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> yeah, that is ideal. Yeah, he's he's. Uh, yeah, I'd recommend him to anyone. Um, but he he just listens to me, listen to me rather, and took me on my word as being trans, which mm. which is important when I've had to sit in front of other doctors and be like, no, seriously, and they're like, you sure though? And I'm like, mm, yeah. <laughs> so previously you've had to continually justify. Yourself, yeah, I mean, this was different. Yeah, absolutely. He um, understood the the difficulties that I faced with it in regards to my borderline as well. Um, I thought that was something else he specialised in because I got... He a... was the perfect <laughs> guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Double whammy there. Um, yeah, he um, he was explaining how there's there's not a lot of crossover within trans people and BPD, which I find quite interesting. With borderline, there's a lot of unstable sense of self and mm. that's obviously a massive crossover being trans. So to have him sit there and go, I can understand why being undiagnosed and not medically transitioning um, as trans could be making those symptoms worse. Mm. Whereas I've had a lot of other um, mental health providers say, no, it's all in your head because you have BPD. Mm. So being listened to, I think so important for trans people, regardless of where they are in their journey, especially like younger, like kids, (laughs) definitely need someone to talk to. That's great. Um, and as we're talking about younger people, it's a nice way to go into the next question. Yeah. What do you think that schools can do to educate younger people about the LGBT community? 
Well, it needs to start with educating older people. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think so many... Well, even you've said today that you found a lot of what I've said quite interesting because you didn't know. I've been absolutely... This has been a school day for me. <laughs> Every day's a school day. It is. Um, I think the first thing would be to, to educate older people, but not even to educate them, just bringing it into schools. But I think when you get a lot of backlash from wanting to educate about LGBTQ, in my opinion, shouldn't be a part of sex education. Mm. It should be more like social... Do you, I don't know. It's been a long time since I went to school. Do you get social skills or something like that? Or interpersonal relationships? Is it called CCSE? Oh, it's, we got called? A, it's got a special name, hasn't it? Yeah. I guess what we're talking about is like... Pe- interpersonal? Per- yeah, we're talking about relationship education yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and personal education. Exactly. Which I don't think there is any of. And yeah, just bringing it in gently. Kids kids are very accepting. And they, they get things without, without judgment. Nobody's born a bigot. You told me a really nice story before. Oh, yeah. Oh, they'll love me mentioning this. Yeah, my friend's a non-binary person, and they have a, a nine-year-old daughter. Yeah, I met her when she was seven, and she came up to me and introduced herself with her name and said, uh, I use she, her pronouns. What are yours? So I told her, and she went, My mummy's sometimes a mummy, but sometimes she's daddy, and sometimes she's neither, and that's fine. Do oh. you want to play with my Transformers? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> And it just goes to show that with just a little bit of patience, not even patience, you just add it in. It's same as you teach maths. In a relaxed kind of... Yeah, there's no pressure to be like, now I know this might be strange, yeah. but mummy's got a girlfriend or anything. It's And children actually don't find many things strange. No, they, well, they're, they're, they're very new to the world anyway, aren't yeah. they? Everything's new to them. Yeah. So, like, nobody thinks that introducing straight relationships is odd. So why would why would gay relationships or trans people or anything be odd? It, it bringing it in mm. soon as is good. <laughs> I think I would have had a much less hard time in my life if I've understood about gender better as a child. I think definitely. Mm. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have learned so much today. You're welcome. <laughs> so thank you for everything today, and thank you for speaking with me and. Thank you for helping us celebrate LGBT History Month. You're very, very welcome. LGBT History Month educates on prejudice, explores the pain in the past and celebrates the present. Lastly, we would like to say that the college stands in solidarity with people of all gender and sexual identities, as well as all backgrounds, and we aim to promote and research the mental health of LGBT people. Thank you for listening to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast.